Welcome to Ecobolic Radio, a listening experience dedicated to making the world stronger, one conversation at a time. Because strength is never a weakness. Welcome to Ecobolic Radio with your host, Derek Woodski. In today's episode, I sit down with longtime friend and teammate Robin Lyons. Robin is currently a strength and conditioning coach for OPEX Performance in Scottsdale, Arizona, where she's helping develop athletes for the next generation of CrossFit Games. Robin herself placed seventh at the CrossFit Games, as well as five All-Americans in track and field and two national championships in Canadian athletics. Robin and I are going to step back in the time machine and go over a career that's involved drug suspensions, crazy college stories, and what it's like to prepare athletes for the next generation of sport. All right, Robin, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic and uh, looking forward to talking with you, Derek. It's been a while. Yeah, it's been a while. Last time that we got on a call where we were really able to sort of hash out some stuff is we did, I think, maybe like an in-house interview for your athletes at OPEX, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. And that was a while ago. Yes, gosh. Two years ago? Yeah, it was. Yeah. Yep. So before we get into it, where where are you living right now? How's life? How's things? Things are great. Um, I'm up in the woods, actually. I, I was down in the desert for the last uh, four years, uh, down in Scottsdale, uh, on site with OPEX, and then uh, decided that, you know, where I was at in my career and what I could continue to do, which is coach for OPEX remotely, um, I wanted to be in a place where I could wake up in the morning and potentially run into a moose. I don't know if that's a normal thing to to ponder, but uh, I just wanted to be back up in the mountains and have access. And well, so I think I'm up it's, here in Idaho. And- I think it's pretty normal when you grow up in northern Alberta. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a totally different monster. I mean, if I was up where you were, up in, you know, uh, you know, golden area and right deep in the, you know, where Revelstoke is and all that. That's a, that's a sweet area. As I like um, to refer to it as the soul of the universe. Oh, totally. I mean, but when you talk about, uh, central Alberta, you know, I don't, I don't think those two things go together. It's totally different worlds. So central you know? Alberta and beautiful geography are not in the same sentence. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think we were talking about, uh, cowboys and, uh, you know, kind of like, the weird South Edmonton Cowboys earlier. So that's kind of what I, I don't get a good feeling. Let's just say it's not a warm feeling. It's not a fuzzy feeling. And, <laughs> and now because of that comment, the three people from Northern Alberta will never listen to this show again. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say I've never been to my high school. Uh, you know, um, when you come back there and say, uh, reunions, I've never done, I've never been up back to Pinoka. Let's just say that. You know where else I've never been back to? And now I feel slightly guilty admitting it. I have not been back to the university of Wyoming since we graduated. You know what? Okay. Me neither. But I had to, I drove through Laramie, uh, last summer. I was going down for a, a conference down in Boulder and I drove through Laramie and I was like, man, I started getting this anxiety and I started going, man, I haven't been back here in a while. And I drove through that town and I got to tell you, it was a depressing feeling. And it really was, uh, you know, I don't know if it's just the whole 
dynamic of you know the experience the, art, the experience while I was there, but it just wasn't, and it just looked depressing. Like it just you know the town just. I was like, man, I actually made it here for you know several years? years. I was like, yeah, well, yeah. Well, let, let's exactly it. Let's let's talk about that a little bit because for those that are listening, Robin and I were teammates at the University of Wyoming from about 1998 to 2001. Mm-hmm. And we had a really good group of athletes at Wyoming at the time, about 20 athletes. We had four qualify for the Olympics that we'll talk about in a minute. Three, I believe, went. Um, there should have been a fourth. We're going to get into that if it's not too <laughs> too sour sure. or, or painful of a topic. But that's where we're going. That's where this anxiety is coming from. And and I have a similar shitload of anxiety related to the University of Wyoming that I probably should deal with. But I lost the ability to walk when I was at the University of Wyoming for almost a year. <laughs> and so Robin had uh, what I believe to be one of the biggest bullshit drug infractions in Canadian athletic history happened while she was at Wyoming and I got injured really bad. So for both of us, even though you were a five-time All-American for the University of Wyoming, as well as, you know, two-time Canadian national champion during that time, you also got hit with an over-the-counter metabolite test back in the days when you know, this is pre-pro hormones. This is pre any of the supplement stuff going on. So it was as, you know, couldn't be a better example of the wild west would be Mm -hmm. how supplement companies were doing business back then. You know, we're in 2018, 20 years later, and people are still getting fucked over by dirty supplements. And you bought a supplement over the counter at Walmart and you had metabolites show up in your urine. Yeah, it was those, uh, I was, God, I was taking everything at that point. And we can talk about that as well, just in terms of, you know, uh, the, 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 the tone, I think getting to Wyoming, working with a specific coach and, uh, you know, the mindset of, you know, you know, we were desperate athletes. We were recruited for a reason. We were, recruited we were not, to no, win. we were recruited to win and we were in, we were hard eggs and that's why we were recruited. Um, you know, there was people that were recruited that didn't make the system more than three months. Um, but there was a reason why we were selected to be there. Um, and we had nothing to lose. And with that attitude as well, I think we, um, also played everything we could to the line, uh, to, to, to prove in our life, whatever was important at that time, whether it was, uh, validation or recognition or just, you know, success, which right. everybody was shooting for. Um, you know, I think there was a lot of things behind closed doors that was going on too with, you know, what was expected of us as athletes. And I'll just kind of leave it at that. But absolutely. Um, in terms of, you know, my supplement use during that time, you're right. It was like, you go GNC and buy Andersteen and ephedra back then. Um, and absolutely. <laughs> you could get ephedra at a truck stop still. Oh, totally. Right. And yeah. And, uh, you know, back in that time, you know, I was taking animal packs and everything that you possibly could, you know, and that was again, um, I think top down, uh, the leadership role at that point too, in terms of like, oh, you need to be doing this, this, and this, and this to make sure that you're, you know, successful all in, yep. all in. Yeah. yeah. And so, and the pressure to be all in by that coach was fucking unbelievable. Yes. Like the only reason we didn't have more people test positive potentially for, for real things like anabolics and this and that is because mm-hmm. back then, in all honesty, 
it was a lot fucking harder to do. It wasn't like you could get on the internet and order who knows what from whateverville. Back mm-hmm. then, you actually had to figure out how to get drugs. So we were doing the next best thing, and we were using a shitload of over-the-counter bullshit products because Mark McGuire just got popped, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And and that was unfortunately, you know, I guess you could say it just what it is what it is, but that's what we walked into. And and that's, you know, we recruited for a reason because we we he knew we could we would do what would it would take in terms of what he believed to be the best uh method to get what he wanted, which was wins. Right. Um and then for us on the other side, yeah, we wanted success. So um unfortunately there was a lot of gray and gray area in that to do that. A lot of gray area. And, uh, you know, we sort of laugh, some of us that have, have crossed paths since, that we really refer to his program as the crocodile program. Because the only people that made it through that system without becoming extinct were, were human crocodiles. They just mm-hmm. had a little bit more resilience, maybe a little bit of good luck. But for the most part, they survived evolution. And... And that's not the way to run a program, but the argument can be made because he did it again at another university. It does seem to be the way to get fast results at the NCAAs. Yeah. And that's the time the coaches are given that, and that's the, that's the buy-in, right? It's like you have four years to get a group of athletes uh, to prove your success as a coach. Um, and then, you know, as the athletes and, you know, I, I bought in too. I was like, fuck, I can two years, I can go to the Olympics. Right. Hell Yeah. Sign right. me up. And right. You, and, and and where you, is that rea- realistically, though? Like, there's no right. fucking program out there for two years and go to Olympics. I mean, you're talking about 12 year programs. Right. Um, and so I think the psychology around that, too, was just, uh, you know, you wanted this instant gratification. We were bought into that. And, um, you know, we had the carrot swinging in front of us to get it. So and that brings up a good point. And I know we've talked about this just, you know, in friendly conversation in the past, but let's go back in time a little bit to that era because, you know, you're in the, in the heat of, of training for performance now as a coach. And we'll get into Mm -hmm. that, but take us back, you know, 20 years, what it was like with your female crew at the University of Wyoming, because you guys were achieving standards that no one will typically ever know about. That even to this day, you know, you see Steffi Cohen do something on Instagram and everybody basically shits in their hat like it's the first thing it's ever, first time it's ever been done. And you're like, hmm, that's pretty cool, but I remember when. So, you know, what kind of performance were you training with back in 1998 at Wyoming in terms of just loads on the bar and what people were doing? Oh, for sure. Uh, And I... I often forget that, to be honest. So um, do I. And, so do I. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's hard to bring, you know, this audience that we're talking to, the, the actual picture of what that weight room looked like. I mean, we scared the football team. And, you know, and I say us as a team, I mean, all of us, men and women, we're doing numbers in there that I just remember Scott Bennett going like, what the fuck? You know, yes. I mean, he would just, he just thought it was amazing uh, just to watch it. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, you know, it was if if we weren't cleaning, okay, clean and jerking 225, um, you were a week. Very so, weak. And you're talking <laughs> we're talking the women's team. Yes, this is women's. And you know, I and 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 Larry Larry Judge, I just said his name, uh was He'll survive. Was, 
yeah, he'll be okay. Um, you know, walking the gym and, and basically just like this, like, I don't even know what you would call it, but just sleeking the gym, like looking at the loads and like, I mean, you were just like pressed to hit these numbers and, yep. uh, and do it quickly. I mean, talk about fast tracking. I yes. mean, I went from like a 95 pound clean to a two Oh two fifteen clean in a year. In a I mean, year, right? In a year, right? Yeah. And doing it for reps. I mean, this is like, you know, you start talking about volume of that type of repetition. And right. Um, and, and so there was absolutely specific protocols, I think, just in terms of recovery and things that we had to do. It's like almost being a professional football player. And, you know, yep. like those guys on are on a specific drug program, you know, most of them. Why? To survive the season of 180 games, you know, um, or even professional baseball players might be a better example too, but yep. just the volume of what you're expected to show up for, like you need to show up and be able to do a, B and C. And if you're not doing a, B and C, you're going to get, you're going to get reamed for it. And I got reamed plenty of times. Um, you got reamed around. so much that we even ran. Right, right. <laughs> like I remember clearly running stairs for something you said, and it's like, how is that oh. possible? How am I running stairs right now? Because she parked her car in a non-parking zone. Oh, I I had issues with with compliance. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of breaking of my own psychological stuff too that he was trying to get into yep. because he needed to have control. He needed to have control of me, and I fought that for a while. Um, and, and so did the team. So. The team suffered. Yeah, the team, <laughs> the team suffered for it. But fighting it, rightfully so, you had to because he was. You know, he was, uh, he was working as a coach. The thing that people have to understand when you're getting into these big programs and the psychological variables that are involved, it's not just a bunch of kids having some fucking fun at a track meet. When you're getting to the highest level of the NC2As, especially pre-internet where coaches were really sometimes quite shitty and nobody ever found out is they would not only push you against the nation because you were expected to be a national champion, but they would twist and turn you amongst yourselves. So he would say one thing to your teammate, then another to you and a third to another teammate and get you all firing against each other every day in practice, not in a camaraderie way, but in a, holy fuck, they did this or they did that. And you start to secretly have animosity towards your training partners because the coach is manipulating the snake so badly in your head about it. Oh God. I mean, that's a totally different podcast because it was, I mean, talk about psychological warfare fucked upness. Oh, I mean, yeah, totally. I mean, I mean, I just constantly, you thought you, you were trying to get on Larry. You wanted Larry's acceptance. Yep. Okay. And this is, you know, maybe for the men, it might've been a little bit different for the females who wanted to be accepted by Larry. We were not normal females. We were lifting weights that were above and beyond any normal female at that time. I would say in the history of in the universities around that time, I'd like to know what female throwers were stronger than us. Nobody, because, nobody like, was. Yeah. Um, right. I would even argue that our men were also that way. Um, I agree. You know, I, uh, you know, we had five guys bench over 450 pounds between the age of 18 and 22. We had two bench 500 and this is all raw right? We're yes. not weightlifters. We've already had, you know, 12 hours of track and field practice throwing weighted implements. So we should be fucking shit bagged and we're still lifting six days a week on his program. And yes, and I don't know if, and I'm not sure if you remember this, but we lifted on a, a three and three schedule, meaning which 
the first three days and the last three days repeated themselves. All that changed is the first three days were for strength and the last three days were for volume. So if you squatted, uh, say, fours on Monday, that same workout repeated on Thursday, but it was tens. Yes, exactly. Huge volumes, right? Huge, huge yes. volumes. And so talking a little bit about the, the psychological part of it is – so it, it, you know, that time for us really sort of pushed you down this road where you're psychologically getting bounced all over the place. You're never good enough. You're never meeting the standards of somebody that at the end of the day, you find out had impossible standards because his standards actually didn't exist. When yeah. you get to that realization and you start to look at the teammates that you had and the people that you were training with, you know, we had girls benching 315. We had, uh, we had a, and this one blows my mind to this day. We had a girl, and I don't know if you remember this. She eventually dropped out. She was from, from, uh, Southern Wyoming. She eventually dropped out. She was a Mormon girl because she was pregnant. And she, so she finally had to leave school. But I remember her squatting 405 for five while she was pregnant. And she was hiding it because she was a Mormon girl and didn't want to get into trouble. And she Oh, was, I know exactly what you're talking right? about. Right? Yeah. And she was already three months pregnant when she yeah. finally came out and said that she had to drop out of school. And I'm like, and I'm doing the math in my head. And I'm like, hold on a second. So she was two months pregnant or two and a half months pregnant when she squatted 405 for five. How strong are these people? Like, I remember having that, <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm like having those thoughts. And, and that's a girl that no one will ever hear of in terms of the strength and conditioning world. A 405 for five I remember, squatter. Derek, I remember when she hit that number, like all of a sudden my 360 didn't matter anymore. And I was like, holy shit, I'm not good enough. And like 400 was the next mark. I mean, yep. it, it was just sick. <laughs> it, it was, it, I mean, at the same time, it's very like for, for us, uh, our types, I think it was very, you know, at that point in our lives, like, oh man, this is just purpose and drive and blah, yep. blah, blah, but, you know, but, uh, God. And yeah. so, so when you eventually hit your top numbers, you were what about a 405 squat? No, I never hit 400. What? Um, God, my femurs are way too fucking long for that. Come <laughs> I got on, long let's get real. femurs. I can't squat 405. <laughs> I know. Plus, no. I'm a chick. Fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> I still want to, you know, I still want to acknowledge that at that time too. I think Larry forgot that we were all females, by the way. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think that when I finally, when I finally broke down and cried to him one time, uh, I think it was another time when I was had to take summer school because I was obviously not doing well in school and I had to up my grades because I wasn't showing up for class because I, uh, I was training that. so much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but so I was in summer school and I was running out to uh, to do practice because this is you know we're still training through the summer. I think Don Ellerby was out there and yep. Jessica and Kevin Mannin and. Um, anyway, I was 15 minutes late cause I had to run from my class to get to there. And I knew he was going to say something and sure enough, he's whispering in Don's ear and, oh, God. you know, and so, and then Don goes, Robin, run two miles, two and miles. Fucking, and this was like year two. Right. And yep. I just fucking like looked at all of them. I just gave him two fucking like, fuck you. I'm like, fuck you. Larry judge. <laughs> and, uh, and Kevin's like, his face was just like, Oh shit. And then Larry's like, didn't do anything. He never does. He just kind of like, Ooh, yep. and, uh, you know, Don's like, what'd you say? And, and uh, I just said, I'm going to freaking practice. Like this is huge. The thing. Yep. And, uh, Kevin grabs me 
and he's he comes running to me, grabs me, and throws me in his truck, and he drives me to the weight room. Yep. And he's like, "Calm down, Lions, calm down." And he throws me a cigarette, you know, and I'm like puffing on this cigarette, and uh, <laughs> and we get to the the weight room, and I'm like, "I'm just gonna I'm gonna just fucking lift weights today, you know, I don't give a shit." And and so he's like, "All right, just calm down." He's trying to get me to like just you know because he thought it was bullshit too, right? Of course. And uh, and so and Larry shows up at the weight room, comes in there, he sees me lifting, Lions, come here, and drags me out of the weight room, and and uh, this is so clear to my brain. And and he's like, you don't have any fucking heart. You're fucking this and that. And he's just breathing me out. Yep. And I just lost it. I lost it finally after, you know, two years. Two and I years. just freaking bawled. And I said, fuck you. I said, I've given you everything. I said, more than I should be giving you. I've given you everything that I possibly have. And I said, I have more heart than you fucking know. And I was just like, Mwah. and I said, you know, I just stopped. I couldn't take it anymore. You know? Right. And I said, you know, I'm, you know, I'm freaking 21 year old female, you know, by the way, college um, athlete, like we're not really adults yet. Like we're yeah, still, figuring like, I'm this still shit trying out. to figure out who the fuck I am. And like, you know, it's like, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm leading the, you know, the track weekly. I'm, I'm number one in the NCAA for weight throw. I'm already like, you know, achieved all American status and I've already done all these things in a year and a half. And this guy was still throwing his fist down my throat. And I did anyway, I just, it was a, it was a perspective of this, this guy who like, you know, Larry judge, who was all consuming. And I just remember there was a point where I finally cried. And I think it was the first time he realized like, Holy shit, he kind of stopped yelling at me. He looked at me. He's like, she is a female. She's a right. girl. What am I, you know, kind of like a reality check for him. Like, what am I doing? Yeah. That's why I saw for two seconds. Right. And then yep. it's back to normal. But well, anyway. yeah. And that's exactly it. And, and people that are trying to have a little bit of a visual in their mind, this right. coach is identical to Marty McFly's father in back to the future. So the actor that plays Marty McFly's father, that is exactly who this coach looks like. So that's who you're getting reamed out by every day is the, is, is the character from fucking back to the future. So you have this guy that is really sort of eccentric and, and, and mm -hmm. very, very much this like psychological, like manipulating guy. But at the end of the day, you still have to step back and be like, holy shit, Marty McFly's old man is like tearing my ass for like the fourth time this week. And and, mm -hmm. and, and it's weird, right? Like you, you sort of have to get in this weird headspace to be able to to deal with it. And that's how I did it. Like I would find <laughs> – like I remember I had – you know, I had gone from being nobody to ranked number one in the, in the exactly. nation, right? In my first mm -hmm. year at Wyoming. And I finally had a bad meet. Like I'd, I've been building and building and building all season. And I had mm -hmm. a bad meet finally. And I remember we're all standing there in a circle in front of everybody at Air Force Academy. I mean, parents, teachers, kids, fucking other coaches, other athletes that you're embarrassed to, to have see, you know, an ass chewing in front of. And he just, he, he goes to each one of us. He's like, you did this, you did this, you did this. Good job here. Whoever probably won the meet got the good job. Mm -hmm. And everybody mm -hmm. else had a critique, critique, critique. And he gets to me and I'm just standing there looking at him. Like, just like, okay, I know I did bad. What are you going to say? Like, what do I need to fix to get, get back on mm -hmm. track? No, mm -hmm. nothing needed to be fixed. He looked at me and he's like, yeah, you shit the bed. It's an embarrassment. And I was like, huh? I'm like, okay, I can't use that, but I'm going to store that. <laughs> <laughs> 
Thanks, coach. Thanks, coach. I'm going to store that one away in the old fucking psychological manifestation for later department because there's nothing I can do. Oh, okay. I shit the bed. I shit the bed. Yeah. (laughs) I'm not sure, but I think it's... But this is the fucked up part, Derek, is we were the most committed, hardworking athletes out there there during that time period. And... And just if I had an athlete like that, right, which I have a couple of great, you know, hardworking athletes, I'll say a couple, I have a, quite a bit, but I'm just saying like the commitment and the dedication, the all inness of that and him to come back and just say something like that is just where, where, you know, it just makes me under, you want to know like, where's Larry Judge's head, you know, like where, what was he dealing with and what is his history? Because and you know, it's like from abuse to abuse to abuse. Because that know? really becomes the answer, right? Like, because in my mind, at that point, I was already starting to figure out some stuff about strength and conditioning. And I'm like, huh, this is interesting. I've trained 14 times this week. 14. Exactly. And, and you're, exactly. And you're wondering why I didn't have a good Saturday. Oh, my God. That, that, cause, okay, that's what exactly what I was trying to say. It's like he's not talking to a lazy athlete. He's not talking to somebody who's not putting all the – all their chips in a bucket and doing what he says. We did everything he said to, to, um, to a degree where, you know, a lot of, I mean, to a degree of failure, Yes. to a degree of like, there was no way we could succeed in that program. Nope. No one could succeed in that program. Nope. And it was, uh, and it was fake. The success that was in there was fake, Yes. you know, to a degree. And, and I don't know if I, it's, I don't want to construe that to saying like discredit any of our winnings and what we've done, but I'm saying like, there was nothing after that. So there, nope. When we were done with that program, there was nothing after that. And, you know, if we had to rebuild ourselves, Derek, um, yes. and not everybody had the ability to rebuild themselves. No, um, you're exactly right. A lot of people from that era faded away. Um, and I always, to this day, two decades later, I judge a program very much on whether or not they're, say they have a 70-foot shot putter, okay, which Mm -hmm. we know in America and the men's side to be world-class or the potential for an Olympic team. If I see a program produce a 70-footer in four years and then that athlete never touches a shot put again, I know they probably went through something similar to the shit we went through. Yes. Um, Whereas when I see a program produce an athlete and then that athlete continues for a few more years – they probably had a good go. They probably had slow, methodical development, and they probably had a coach that wasn't trying to steal their soul for the sake of their own <laughs> accolades, right? Exactly. So, so that sort of transitions us. Well, for one, it definitely answers the question as to why we've not been back to Laramie, Wyoming. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we need to write a book about that. There needs to be a book about like the misfit cowboys and cowgirls or something. I'll tell you what, it would be a bestseller because there was some shit that went awry in that period that would have a direct impact. Not only would it be entertaining as shit, like people have to understand we used to, the guys team used to hang out in the backyard of one of the athletes house. And that house had a fence that was sort of right off the main street uh, of Laramie. And, and we'd be in the backyard drinking beers. You know, back then it seemed like half the team smoked. It was, it was pretty funny, right? So half of us didn't, half did. So those that smoked would be out in the backyard, would all be drinking beers. And I remember seeing the, as we used to think the girl's car. So it was like, Tamara's 
Honda oh. or something like that. So it's a green car. Which I remember one night we seen it go flying by. We're like, hey, there goes the girls' team, right? So there's probably like <laughs> like seven girls in a car that help, holds four, right? And then we see the car go flying by again like 10 minutes later. And then we see police cars. And then we find out that perhaps this car may have ran over a gas pump at the local gas station and ripped it out of the ground, right? Right. <laughs> right? So, so the guy's team the whole night sees this happen. And then a phone call comes into the house. Oh, my God, Kevin, we, we ran over a gas pump, ripping it out of the ground, and we fled the scene. And so I remember <laughs> – so the guy's team is sitting there going – you know, in the backyard, half are smoking, stressed out of their fucking head. So now they're smoking like twice as fast. And they're, and all, and I remember all anyone was thinking was, do you think we're going to have to run? Do you think this, would not- <laughs> do you think we're going to have to run on Monday for this massive federal crime? Like, you know, <laughs> hey, let's, let's get this straight. Okay. Let's talk about running and why that was such a torturous thing. In college, Larry Judge wanted me to be. 200 pounds. Yes. Okay. That's a really so, good point. I, he wanted me to be 300. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, I mean, every day, Lions, get on the scale. You know, like, <laughs> on the scale, like, please, please don't be under 175, you know? Yeah, a total um, reverse psychology of what people would actually think. You're like, oh, my God, I hope I'm not under 175 as a female 21 years of age. Oh, God. We were in Kansas State. Just, uh, I think I, I, Kansas or somewhere out freaking in the flats, uh, but I didn't win. So it was a crime. And uh, we got, you know, how we lift after every meet, by the way. So yes. let's just not forget that training session after the track meet. We went down and freaking tried to back out after a track meet, correct? Every time. <laughs> and, and, and before we talk about your weight going up, what people have to realize is our biggest, heaviest, most, uh, our highest intensity lifting session was right after we competed on Saturdays, no matter where we were in the country. So if we were in Podunk, Nebraska, we found a gym or got to use theirs and we did our lift. So, you know, on top of all the other shit that we were doing, the craziest fucking thing I ever saw, Robin, in this situation, we had a guy who was a 61-foot shot putter. He, you know, that was his PR. In Nebraska, he throws like 60-foot nine. So he's within like a few percent of his lifetime best. He then goes into the weight room in front of the entire field house because the weight room was on the field house floor. That same athlete squats 705 for four with just a belt, right? So Jason Hammond squats yes. 705 for four. Larry chewed his ass. And the reason that he chewed his ass in front of everybody was, well, you must have had more in you if you could still squat 705 for four. Yes. Yes. How fucking psychology is crazy. So so now he's throwing you on the scale in in flyover state America. Tell us about yeah. that. Yeah. So it's after the meet and I didn't win and I think I got second and um, still threw a PR or something. I don't know. Something stupid. But walked in there and Lions, jump on the scale. And jump on the scale. I was like 170 six or something like that and he goes that's what i'm fucking talking about you know you didn't you're so light right now i knew you were light you know and i'm like, I'm like holy cow i just finished a track me coach so i mean yeah 
might be a little light, but I was just like, but yeah. So it's like, you know, I got reamed out for that. So yep. I had to up, get my uptake, you know, I, I'd be over 185 basically. And I remember to a point where I couldn't hold that weight. I just felt like crap. I, I felt like I, my back hurt all the time. Yep. Um, you know, and then finally, like when I kind of grew up a little bit through that process, which was kind of amazing that you could grow up to that, but, uh, grew up and, and realized, you know, I'm going to take some responsibility on my own and just do what feels good for me. And I, and that was the year he basically said nothing to me, which was kind of a great freedom and of release. But, you know, and I ended up averaging, you know, 178, um, which right. was a good weight for me at that time. But yeah, I mean, over 185 for me and I'm five foot eight. And now, you know, I weigh 150 pounds, yep. um, but it's, I mean, that took me a while to get out of too. And I remember him always saying, oh, you can lose the weight when you're done. It's like, um, yeah, that doesn't really work that way when you're psychologically attached to Absolutely. Yeah. You're making a huge point because I've talked about this in the past with power athletes that come out of the power athlete world is, mm-hmm. is talking about carrying that ghost or carrying that thing. And and I've written it about written about it a little bit this year, and I spoke about it at Summer Strong Ten. Is what do you do when your good programming, mental programming, or your good motivational ideas are no longer beneficial? So, what happens when how you programmed your brain for success is no longer mm-hmm. successful? And, and it's something that no one talks about, but in, in certain circumstances, um, you could even argue that it, it's, uh, people that come back from, say, military service, like my brother-in-law, uh, when he got home, the same psychology that allowed him to survive mm-hmm. is no longer helping him, uh, in, you know, in medical school in Colorado. Because it's a fight or flight survival mechanism that he's using and it's causing him PTS, right? So Mm -hmm. when you start to look at these manifestations where, okay, I, you know, this psychology is going to help me at this point in my life and it's going to allow me to achieve these goals. But when that ship, you know, reaches harbor and that same psychology now is a detriment, it's really fucking hard to reprogram that. Because it had such a positive or life saving or cycle or uh, success inducing, uh, depending on the scenario, manifestation, right? And yeah. so when you started to transition away from Wyoming, you went through a couple different evolutions. You know, you, you went into mm-hmm. like other things. You did shit. You competed what six times at the world championships for women's long drive and golf. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, before I get into that, I think. I think you're, you're kind of, you know, we're talking around that, talking around it a little bit, but when you get an athlete, um, who is striving towards something, let's say a sport, let's just in general, yep. you know, and I do this with my current athletes now, um, I really dig into why they're doing this. Okay. So, yep. and it could be multiple reasons why we don't need to get, you know, down a wormhole on it, but just in general reference, you know, for me back in that time, if I was looking at Wyoming and what it served its purpose for. I was looking to prove myself. I was looking to have validation. I was looking for acceptance for a female who was gay, who didn't know how I, how I was going to fit in, but I knew that I could win a hammer throw or I could be a national champion. And it didn't matter if I had a shaved head and a ring through my nose, people thought Uh, I was pretty awesome. Right. That's a really good point. Absolutely. So is, so for me, like being a track star, and putting everything on the line to maintain that gave me 
acceptance from everybody in the circles that I that I ran into um, and even, you know, obviously family and friends yep. and then also validation and recognition. I got recognized for something. Look at her. Look at what she's doing. Blah, blah, blah. I got, you know, weekly in the papers. And at that point, you're on the Internet for, you know, track week and all that kind of stuff. And you start getting all these little awards, right, right for your success. And that was right. addicting to get to. Now it's social media. Now it's like, how many likes do I get? Okay, so, you know, it's... 100%. It's, it's, <laughs> we used to get it in the newspaper on a Wednesday, right? But it's the same totally. gratification. Exactly. So, you know, I think in the element of, you know, what Wyoming was for me at that point in my life was it was giving me those things that I so desperately needed at that point. Um, and so it was no, natural, I guess, for me to jump to the next thing. So... Um, you know, for me, it was long drive golf. It was the Canadian bobsleigh. I kept chasing um, ways to validate and, and gain acceptance and recognition right. in my life, right? right? Because I never stopped the madness, never stopped like the speeding car yep. and just took a second and said, okay, where are you going and what do you want? What do you really want, Robin? Yep. You know, um, and I just, I ran, I raced that car as hard as I possibly could. Um, and, um, yeah, so I think, I think the why is behind why we do what we do at certain points of our life. And then that pattern of that continuing. And, uh, you know, for me, it's now at this point in my life, looking back and looking at like, yeah, there were certain things that I was requesting. So I think, I think athletes that get caught up in something like that, where it is those little, like maybe it is you know, their own personal pursuit to, to have a recognition or validation in something um, is a lot different than an athlete who loves what they do because they just love what they do. And that's who they are, if that makes sense. I think that makes a lot of sense. And I know even with myself, because I felt like my, my injuries interrupted my process and interrupted what I was supposed to do with my life. And I, and I spoke about this at the power athlete symposium this year. And I said that there's a weird thing happens when, when certain things get interrupted in a person's life, doesn't matter if it's an injury in athletics, it doesn't matter if it was an unfulfilled achievement bracket. Um, it, it, there's whatever that identity is, whatever that is that we're trying to be, when something interrupts it or something happens, it's almost like the hand on a clock stops at that time period in your life. And mm -hmm. you start racing and doing things and trying to push against different obstacles and trying to achieve different things and, and work and work and work. But what ends up happening is until you sort of wake up to the reality that you are this or you are that, or this is who you really are, what you're really trying to achieve, or you overcome something and it could be psychological or physiological that's that's when that clock moves ahead one second again and it could be one year it could be 10 years but for some reason and for a lot of people it's like their life and a big chunk of it which is sad to think because they could even have good and good enjoyments in that period but their life was put on pause and I've met a lot of people that come through collegiate systems like we did or came through uh, social circumstance like yourself. For me, um, you know, obviously my need to prove was was slightly different. It was from being from an invisible place on a map um, mm -hmm. that, that I needed that recognition. But when that process got interrupted and then finally 
you know, I realized that I had healed or something like that had happened. And that clock clicks forward that one second. And you're like, oh my, oh my God, I'm over it. I'm past it. I can move on with my life. A lot of fucking time passes. And, <laughs> you know, and, and you look back on it and you're like, wow, man, I was stuck in that vortex for a while. And I don't know how much time I might have actually lost thinking that I was chasing the progression of, of, of my life. You know, and that, and I think it comes back to this point, you know, and and what we chase in life and what we, you know, what we really want. I think, you know, I'm speaking from my personal opinion around this, but things I put in my life now, I really want to put them there. And I really, that's the essence of who I am. It's what I love. It's what I think about on a daily basis. Right. Um, Because I'll tell you this, Derek, when you fail at something that you don't really love, it really fucking hurts. So knowing that, knowing that you can fail at something like let's say track and field for me. And it was never something I was like truly loved. It was something that was giving me something that I needed at that point in my life. Right. Um, you know, and don't get me wrong. I had a good fucking time, right? There yeah. were some good things and lots of lessons learned. Um, and I got to travel to places I would never travel to even worldwide. So, but you know, at the end of the day, when you fail at something like that, it hurts really bad. And so why not put something in front of you that you really love? And even if you fail at it, guess what? You don't give a shit. Right. There's no attachment to it because I fucking love this and I'm going to get up every morning and I'm going to do it again and yep. I'm going to fall off my bike again. But guess what? I don't care. I love doing it. You know, it doesn't yep. make sense. So it's like, I think at this point in my life, I've really, really come to start to understand that. And it's been a great release and freedom for me to not be scared of failure and not be, you know, kind of be like second guess myself because it's like, I'm just going to put things in front of me that resemble who I am and what I want to live my life to be, you know? Um, and I really push that with my athletes now in terms of my life lessons and experiences and, you know, really dig down into, yeah, there is some whys behind this and it's okay if you want to go out just to get your gold medal. And it's, that's freaking great. Everyone, everyone wants success and you can measure it however you want to, uh, whether it's a gold medal or just a PR in the weight room. Um, but you know, I think in, for the joyness, I think joyful, if you want to call it, um, you know, joyful, I say in terms of like having a life that you can like look back and say, yeah, that was a good time. Right. right. Instead of like, man, I've just survived my life. It's like, no, how can you make a joyful life in terms of putting things out there that are you, that you want to experience and living up to that and up leveling that in as many ways as you possibly can. Man, I'll tell you what, that, that's really true. It's, uh, because there's a lot of people that are putting forth the image of a positive existence right now or a, a successful existence. And you can tell that they're just surviving life. And, right. you know, everything they put up is an attempt to convince us of other, but you're <laughs> like, you know what? I've, I've seen this fucking ride and it's, this ride's not going to end well for this person. And, and I've, I was talking to some people in the industry about this recently where there's, uh, you know, with social media, for example, because it is such an addictive thing to, to get that recognition because we all want to be recognized, right? You know, we come from, you know, we look at our biology over the last couple hundred years. We went from living in groups of 50 to now being a part of a seven billion group, right? And, and that's not right. e- easy for our brain to deal with. And, you know, so you go back a couple hundred years ago, 
and I may have been highly needed in our society because of my ability to endure physical labor, right? Like, yes. And every night I go to bed and I'm like, yeah, man, I'm an important motherfucker. I cut down that tree. I flipped over that rock, you know. <laughs> this, totally though. And yeah. I could see you doing that actually. Totally see you it. Know. Yeah. I probably got a, a wife and kids because I, I'm useful, right? Like right. they might even have given me one of the better ones in the town, right? Like, <laughs> and I say given, I really do mean that because that's how it was, right? I, right. I know a, I went to school with a girl in Canada whose mother was given to her father because he brought so much wealth to the Inuit people. Like, people think that, holy shit, is that true? Yeah, 38 years yeah. ago. We're not exactly writing the fucking history books here. But it's, uh, uh, anyway, I digress. But you would have had this, like, incredible purpose. And, and every day you would have been recognized over some drinks, a campfire, and some laughs. And totally. unfortunately, because of the advancement of society, that's all getting fragmented. And as it gets fragmented, Unfortunately, people lose their sense of worth. And as they lose their sense of worth and their place in this world, we start searching for it. We, you know, we, we, you know, I write, um, we're doing a podcast right now because we're hoping that this will get our message out and it makes us feel good and hopefully it'll make other people feel better. Um, but at the end of the day, it's, it's worth is probably the one thing that makes us happiest more than the worth of money, more than the worth of this, the worth of that. And, and it's like, if you don't feel like you have any worth, man, life becomes a, a struggle, right? It, it really does become a struggle. And, and, and that's what's going to cause, in my opinion, the implosion of a lot of the fit figure, bodybuilding, CrossFit and power mm -hmm. athletes that are using social media for recognition. Because oh, yeah. they're doing, by, almost like by default, they're doing what Larry did to us at Wyoming. You know? Yep. They're training twice yep. a day, six days a week, grinding this crazy fucking routine for the sake of a photograph. We were doing it tr to try to win national titles. But still, at the end of the day, it's it's recognition that we were chasing. And it's like, they're going to start exploding. Like, you'll just go online one day and it'll be the person that you've been watching deadlift every fucking day for like seven months. And you'll go on one day and they'll be like, back on the injury train. And it'll show a picture of them getting a fucking knee scope or a picture of them getting their back worked on. And you're like, no shit, dude. And it's always back on. Like, like you're, like the injury train is a part of the process, right? Oh, yeah. Totally. I, yeah. I mean, when you said that, there's so many names that came to my, oh, yeah. to, into my head, but I won't name them. A catalog <laughs> but, of social media superstars, right? <laughs> that are getting fucking shoulders, knees, backs, elbows. And that's, and that's the thing. It's like, how shallow is this that we're, you know, this, this social media vortex is just so shallow and meaningless and there's nothing at the end and that and you nope. can't really tell somebody that until they unfortunately experience that you can just share with them you know your own life experience in the realm of like be careful what you're chasing right and be careful because yep. it comes at a cost so there's a cost to that and are you willing to, to 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 give that you know are you willing to lose some of that, you know, and right. I'm just saying that in general sense, but yep. there's a cost to what they're doing. And then, you know, the gain is just instant. 
instant gratification. Oh, I got to like, I got to like that's instant gratification, but there's a cost to that in the long run. Yep. And, uh, it, it is, unfortunately it is an empty road at the end. There isn't, there is a dead end to this. Um, and then they're left with no likes and then, and then they're left with like, well, what was that for? And that's, and that's what I always give to my athletes. Like, why are you doing this? What do you want to get out of this? You want to get it, you know, let's, let's really dig into this more. So it's like, when you put this in front of you, is it really because you love doing this? You love the process of this training and the sport, or do you just love the process of your Instagram? Like, um, because I'm not going to coach Instagram likes, right. And my first interviews with all my athletes, it's very, very blunt and dry. And I've absolutely turned people away from working with me, but I'm like, yeah, you're not ready for this. You're not ready for the real bits of what it takes to become the best you can become because doing it on Instagram is not becoming your best. It's not, it's not real. It's all fake. And once they understand that, then they can actually turn their phones off and get to work. You make a a very good point because it is fleeting. Uh, you know, we have, uh, an electronic attack tomorrow and we lose electricity for the next five days, literally five five days, there's a lot of people in their brain have, have gone out of work. Like, you know, they're like, Oh, I don't have electricity. I don't have a job. If I don't have a job and electricity, I actually don't exist. Holy fuck. Without electricity, I don't exist. What does that make me a fucking robot? You have turned Mm -hmm. yourself into a social media robot because if you require electricity for a sense of self-worth and existence on this planet, you're mm-hmm. a fucking android. Congratulations, yes. right? Exactly. How fucked up exactly. is that, right? And how many people would actually still be doing what they're doing if there wasn't social media? That'd be my my question. So if we took away the phones and threw them away for a year, would you still be training and doing the things that you need to do that's required for what you're trying to achieve? And if you would say wow. no to that, then guess what? There's the truth. There's truth, people right? People hate the truth. Like mm-hmm. how many gym memberships would dry up without instant gratification of the social media network mm-hmm. that's fucked up yep. that's heavy yep it's sort of weird yep. and people sort of suck but when we, <laughs> 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 yeah. when uh when you look at like how you progressed because you also competed at the regional level and the games level in the early days correct yeah, when you could sign up for CrossFit Games, that's what I was doing. Um, I went down to Aromos in 2008, um, and I was messing around with, mucking around with CrossFit in my own gym at that time. Yep. And uh, <laughs> so anyway, I won't get into that story, but I went, I signed up to CrossFit, <laughs> and uh, yeah, we're out there in the ranch doing cleans and jerks and running up a hill, and it was the year they did all the short metabolic pieces. So yep. I actually had a lot of success in that, which... Um, the only thing I couldn't do at that time was burpees because I right. just it's just too much aerobic, too much capacity work that I didn't have built right. up. But um, yeah, I ended up seventh that year, and I was like, oh my god, this is my new thing. This is what I can do. Like yep. chasing after this, and and uh, so I actually yeah I continued. Oh, okay, that. hold on, hold on one second. Why on your social media have I not read on Instagram that you were the seventh fittest in the world? What's going on? <laughs> No, exactly. <laughs> right? Like, exactly. Are you not the Come seventh on. fittest human on the planet? You could totally, In 2008. In 2008, yeah. I was the seventh fittest human <laughs> to walk the earth. You know, meanwhile, some Olympian and Kenyan's like, fuck you, you know? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I run yeah. seven, I run fucking a hundred miles a week, my friend, every week. Yes. Yes, but can they do burpees and deadlifts? That's a good question. That's the question. That's, because yes. God that's knows, for... if you can't deadlift, you're not fit. 
in CrossFit world. Yes. Yeah. Um, so anyway, yeah. So I did that. And then the next five years, gosh, was it five? Um, I ran my body, uh, like it was a rented suit. I think I've heard you say that before, actually. It, so it I'm is. stealing that from you. It's very much but how we a- lived our lives. <laughs> I continued that through my early thirties is, is in, uh, until I hit a really hard wall. Um, and that was the evolution of the new Robin lions, uh, basically yep. at that point. And that's when I went into uh, coaching full time, but, um, oh, I rode that horse as hard as I could. Yep. Um, and of course at the same time, trying to throw as many things on my plate as possible with, you know, trying to identify, you know, what my career was going to be, how I was going to survive in this life and all those things yep. as I was hanging on to this ideology of being a successful athlete and, crossed it was going to give me that um and i think uh yeah so i competed at regional level always finished in the top tens i think in 2010 i finished fourth i missed the games again by one spot i think that was the weird regional year where they had like their own regions creating the workouts and different play like some regions got four people some people got three while i was in the three so i I missed the spot yeah yeah Advice, but I was like, okay, again, just another, probably the, the universe trying to tell me like, look, yeah. stop. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> stop. Yeah, um, but yeah. Uh, yeah, so that was, it was a short, it was a short, fast bang, I guess you could say, but it was, it was, uh, it was, it was great. I loved it uh, until it, it turned into a dangerous thing for me where I basically lost all my hormones and had to rebuild myself again. Right. So. And, and that's something that we can touch on right here because what a lot of people aren't aware of is, you know, and I, and I had someone on the podcast recently, um, and she works with hormone replacement therapy. Um, that's a big deal because we are getting a lot of people that are chasing these extreme volume parameters. And we're getting a lot of people trying to do these things with their body, not at 18 or 19. We're talking now 25, 26, 32, 35. And it can have a massively detrimental effect on your hormone profile as a male or a female, right? Mm -hmm. How, how bad did that throw you off? Yeah. Well, I think one of the big, precursors for me was that I already came into the sport with a lot of damage already yeah. uh, on a physiological level um, minus the psychological <laughs> but um, you know I was already coming in with a partially empty tank so yeah, sure. um, you know there was you know with biological age um, training age um, the, the, again you know I had success immediately in CrossFit to that at that time because I had this huge training history yep. that allowed me to do like the chest to bar pull-ups and the things that at that point of the of the CrossFit era was really relatively new like holy shit you could do chest to bar pull-ups and you can do muscle ups and all these things I I could do those because of the extensive amount of reps that I did prior to that right the 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 things that changed for me was when I had to try to do the the type of contractions under metabolic fatigue that's where the damage comes in because now all of a sudden me doing a strict pull-up and a deadlift is a lot different than doing a chest to bar pull-up and burpees and uh, touch and go cleans right. uh, in terms of what's happening under the hood. So, you know, I think without that readiness or that, that foundation of aerobic capacity or the ability to actually balance that out, understand and understand the training that you are doing, which I didn't, I just did it. Like a lot of people just looked on CrossFit.com and did the workouts, you know, and they did them as hard as they possibly could. Yep. Exactly. And if you weren't on your back, you did it wrong. You know, like that was the dogma back then. Right. Um, And you know, that's where the company I work for now, where with James Fitzgerald, 
Um, and he's been saying this since 2008 too, is just like, that's not a realistic way to Train. progress somebody to the sport, yeah. right. And get them ready for it. It's like, it's like taking an ultra marathoner and then having them run 50 miles their first day. Yep. It's not, you know, it doesn't make zero sense. So, um, anyway, yeah. So I think, you know, I, I had this entry level already. I kind of like check marked off and I was able to get away with a lot of things within CrossFit. And then the more volume each year that was required to compete, I just kept stacking it on without an awareness of like, wow, am I getting my recovery? Am I eating properly? Am I making sure I'm, you know, uh, you know, doing a lymph flow, <laughs> like doing right. things that are going to support my liver, you know, because it's of the demand of lactate that's coming through my system now, like all these things um, that again, I wasn't aware of. I was because I was just ignorant at that time of the sport. Right. Um, it just, yeah, it crashed and burned. So, you know, your adrenals can only do so much. Your liver can only do so much. And the hormones that I was left with at that point can only do so much. Um, and so in th 2014, uh, open qualifiers, um, I knew something was drastically wrong uh, with my ability and even my psychological yep. perspective. Like I just was totally changing. Like I just couldn't push anymore. Um, and I went in to see the doctor. And sure enough, I mean, I had zero zero testosterone, yep. zero estrogen, zero progesterone, like nothing. And then my parasympathetic and sympathetic system was like, like the break and the gas was on at the same time. So, so it was just like my body was trying to calm me down, but I couldn't. So you, you were know? waking up with like 80 beat heart rates and, you know, fully rested in the red, you know, and cortisol. Yeah, yeah. Probably the only hormone that you had that was even doing a, a function at all was cortisol. Um, and you, you make a really good point. Like a lot of people don't realize that the liver, the actual organ, the liver has to process a lot of the byproduct of all this metabolic work. And so if you get these guys and girls that are doing a ton of metabolic work, getting a huge amount of lactate production, their diet may not be the greatest. Maybe they're taking uh, some some bathtub anabolic pill. Something's mm -hmm. going on. And all of a sudden, they're just like, man, I'm not well. I'm, I'm actually sick. And you're like, hmm, you should probably have your liver enzymes checked due to the yeah. amount of metabolic stress that your body's under all right. and the put, time. And slap and slap this on top of most of the dogma as well. Everyone's doing strict paleo. So everyone's doing <laughs> high fat and protein, right? And uh, the zone diet or whatever. And, yep. you know, the whole time the body's needing glucose to do all this work, but we're not giving it to it. So think how much, I mean, it's just like, I can go so far into this, Derek, and I know we don't have time to do that, but it's a shit show. So it's like, yes, if, if you're not educated, um, if you're not aware of the sport, the history of the sport, even, yep. um, and, uh, the understanding of training and principles to that training, yep. um, and how that actually works. And that's my job now, uh, as a full-time coach for OPEX is educating the athletes who are in front of me about the sport that they're wanting to so badly, um, pursue, uh, and really giving them the full picture of what it's really going to take to develop an anaerobic system, to develop an aerobic system, right. to develop movement efficiency. Are you ready to sign up for a fucking eight year plan? Because that is the process. Yes, I fast track because I did a lot of the movement and a lot of the reps required to do the dynamic contractions. But what I didn't train was dynamic contractions under fatigue. Under fatigue, so, yeah. And that takes another block of training and time to do that. Well, and, and that's exactly it. Like you were able to fast track because you had a 225 pound power clean 
coming out of college, exactly. right? Yes. Like, yes. you know, and uh, an almost 400 pound squat, but. And I was going to say, I was going to say, yeah, make that, you know, the power. I mean, we never squat clean. No, I mean, we didn't we squat clean weight, at all. Yeah, we're... It was freaking power clean. I mean, I think the most I got was the uh, 2000 right before the Olympics. I got, I was going for 235, 240 or something like that. I was up in Canada, actually, just training at the in Edmonton right before the trials. Yep. And I hit and I missed it. Like, I just missed it. I'm like, I got so pissed. And I backed off from the bar. I'm like, oh, you know how we just used to get like just yeah. all in this fierce Lunatic line of red. Yeah. Oh, like you just went blacked out. Right. And I just walked <laughs> into the bar again, fucking ripped it off the ground. Boom. On my shoulders. Like I was like 135, 140. It was in kilos. I don't remember. But I was like. Where is that even possible? Like, I don't even know how it's even possible to try to do two attempts at your max, right, in, in a matter of, like, five seconds. But there was just this, this switch that was so innately trained in Wyoming. Yeah. Like, Basically, <laughs> Wyoming was a training ground for, like, the berserker rage of the early Viking era, right? Like, yes. we were just a <laughs> bunch of fucking lunatics. And I remember, like, I used to get so excited about allowing myself to go to that place of complete yes. unbridled lunacy. And I remember, you know, what people have to remember, one of my teammates, yours as well, but one of the teammates on the guy's side had a close grip bench of 500 pounds, right? Yes. And I remember every time that he did a max effort, which for us seemed like at least once a week for four years. So, <laughs> so whenever he did a max effort, whatever the rep range was. So week one, it was a max effort of five. Week two, max effort of four. So you'd always have that mentality. And he would go over and he would stare at himself in the mirror. And I don't know what he saw. To this day, I'm not sure what he was looking at. <laughs> but I'm, It wasn't him. It, it wasn't himself. That's yeah, for sure. That's exactly it. He was looking oh, at basically man. 20 years of heartache and pain, right? And then he would just like turn beet red, like somebody yes. was turning up the temperature. It's like, oh, look, he's giving himself a fever. So he would turn like, <laughs> <laughs> he would turn as oh, red man. as a fucking tomato, smash himself in the face so yes. hard that a chalk of a cloud of chalk would blow off his own head. And yep. then he would like steamroll through the weight room. Well, everybody was cheering him on like that was the most normal thing he could possibly be doing every Monday afternoon. Yes. And then he would lay down a close grip bench 500 fucking pounds, right? Like and he, and, and Derek, don't make it like don't make it like you weren't one of those guys either doing the same thing. <laughs> Cuz I remember like when it was Derek's time to squat, we all watched. Like we were like, yeah, we're standing around the you know, squat rack and you're just doing this whole Routine, routine of like it, it was like fucking like a 10 minute routine like you went from like and just build and build and build you could just see like man someone's gonna get killed today <laughs> you know <laughs> somebody's fucking um, dying and it's uh <laughs> kill yourself anyway and you know it's funny because i remember back i was talking to someone recently about this and that whole time i only missed the squat once in my whole life and I, I buckled on a 585 for four at like mm -hmm. 230 pounds. And, and I remember like the bar crashing to the racks and, and having to like climb out from under it. And it was me, Hammond and the head coach of the weight room at the time, Bennett. Mm -hmm. And he's like, what's up, man? I've never seen you miss a squat. And I, and I remember being like, wow, that's weird. I don't know what's wrong with me. 
And, and, <laughs> and because he wasn't our like lifting coach, he was just really supportive of us. He sort of was looking at me and he's like, well, you know, I, I don't want to draw any conclusions, but it is Friday night at 8 p.m. And we're the only assholes in the weight room. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, fuck, we should really be doing something else, shouldn't we? And he's oh, like, yeah. yeah, probably. And uh, and I came back the next week and squatted 495 for three. So obviously, it, like, I still kept progressing. But yeah, man, it was Friday night in the weight room. And I'm trying to but, do this crazy shit. But that's, but we had no perception. Like, nah, we had no zero. perception. And that was, you know, another reason why we were probably recruited. You know, we're just dumb fucking athletes. And yep. like, yeah, okay, coach. Yep. Um, and we just know we have to get this work done. And if we don't show up and do it, you know, that's right. And, and we did, you know, we yeah. did to a fault. But yeah, it was, yeah. Uh, I went to school to be an athlete and they gave me a degree on the way out the door. It's. Yeah, uh, you got, you were the lucky one. You got the degree. You yeah. <laughs> had to come back later. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. You had to finish up on your own time. Well, it's like, <laughs> it's <laughs> like Jason, he, uh, he didn't get his degree from Wyoming. So knowing that he had to get it, he transferred over to the University of Idaho Extended School or sorry, University of Indiana, because he's like, fuck, if Wyoming's not going to give me a degree, well, I'm going to get a degree from a school that looks cool on my wall. That's how he looked yeah. at it. So he got University of Indiana, it took like fucking six hours, right? So he did oh, all his God. school at Wyoming and got his degree from Indiana. But before I let you off, just talk a little bit about how you set up some of your training now because you've, you know, we've given all these people this huge story of like, fuck, this is what it was like. <laughs> how did you train? They, they probably already like tuned this out by now. They're just like, these yeah, guys are nuts. Yeah. Some, somebody's like 34 minutes into a car ride right now and they're just like, oh shit, this is still on. Um, <laughs> What's uh? But how do you set up your training right now in terms of the athletes you're working with at OPEX? Because you've had all this experience, and that's really what this background story is showing is, okay, listen, I've done it a million different ways from Sunday, and now I'm having a lot of success, and this is why. Like, how do you sort of break it down now? Like, do you have a system in mind that you're like, okay, this is what I try to work for with my athletes? Oh my gosh, Derek. And you said this is going to wrap it up? Well, this was the wrap it up question. Sure, um, what, 35, 40 seconds? No? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah no, I think I, we'll go back to just, you know, when I get a new athlete in front of me um, who's who's wanting to achieve a goal in sport, and I'll, you know, CrossFit's probably the main yep. theme that I work with in terms of just the company that I'm working for. Um, but I do work, you know, one-offs on, on other sports as well. But, um, you know, it, I, I start with again, you know, what we talked about earlier in, in really just interviewing the the athlete and getting an understanding of kind of who they are as a person, their temperament, um, you know, you know, what brought them to this point now. Are they, you know, maybe they're fourteen years old or maybe they are um, you know, thirty years old, still trying to, you know, hang on to um an aspect of their athleticism. So, you know, I think it's it's really just a good conversation and in, in trying to understand why they're doing what they're doing and what they're looking to achieve out of that. I usually try to, you know, get really dry and, and, and people kind of say aggressive around it. You know, some people don't agree with, with that, but I agree with truth. Uh, I think that's the biggest thing I've learned as being a coach over the last six years, especially remotely um, with this company uh, is, is really getting down to the truth as quickly as I possibly can. And, and unfortunately, 
in a remote setting, you're never going to get that all the time uh, because people will just tell you what they want you to hear. Um, but, you know, I try to strip that away and, and, and kind of give them the, the idea that, hey, I'm going to be honest with you, too. I'm going to I'm going to I want to help you, but I need to know exactly where we're going with this and, and what the purpose is so we can really, you know, start dictating and, and outlining a plan. And with that plan, we can put a timeline to it. And with that timeline, you can commit to it or not. Right. So I think it starts at that point. Um, And then in the design aspect, it it really starts with meeting the athlete where they're at. You know, what's the biological age? What's their history in sport? How many repetitions have they done? What's their lifestyle? What's their psychological state? Um, How are they a fast adapter? Are they a slow adapter? I think there's a lot of things um, that I do an investigation of in the, in the first meeting of the athlete within the, you know, two weeks or a month of working with them to really start dialing in pieces of like, okay, this is really where we're going. This is really what it's going to take. Are you still on board? Um, and, uh, all the athletes I work with, you know, uh, have them on a contract with me for a reason, because once we start getting the truth and understanding what's happening within that, the contract shows me that they're fully committed to that. And I don't want somebody, again, who's on here for three months to do an Instagram post and then, oh, that's not what I want to do. I wasn't getting the likes I thought I was going to get. You know, I'm just using that as an example. But so, you know, it's, you know, the athletes that I I work with now, and I think that has also changed for me um, to Derek, because I think going from athlete to coach, uh, you know, it's an evolution. It's an extension um, of where we came from. So when I first started really getting into coaching and I can say I've coached over 17 years, but really getting into it in terms of understanding myself, understanding who I am as a human so I can really contribute to somebody else. I think that evolution was, you know, really in the last 10 years for me. Um, and, um, the extension of that, what I was saying was from going from athlete to coach, I was still looking for the validations and, and the things, uh, recognition that I was getting from being an athlete. Right. So, you know, when I first started and and of course, if you're a new coach out there and, you know, you can kind of look at why you're coaching and and that's a good question to always ask. But um, I think the evolution of a coach and your your continuum of that, you know, for me, it's important that it changes and that it continues to evolve. Um, And if I look back at a coach like Larry Judge, I think he was caught up in that. Right. He was still caught up in his own um, athletic life, his own own athletic life. And he was still trying to justify himself as somebody who was successful and trying to get recognition for that. And that's why, unfortunately, we paid the price for for who he's working with. So with that context, I don't want to be that coach yep. who is just living off of my own shit, right? So yep. Let's just say my 100%. own history. Yep. I want to I actually contribute to an athlete um, fully for right. who they are and pull myself out of it and just be that guiding light. Right. Um, so that's, that is so true. And Brad Soper from Australia was talking about that yesterday when I spoke with him is the idea that you are a catalyst to somebody else's success, but it is not your success that should be advertised. So, you know, like he always says, he makes this statement, I'm your coach more than you're my athlete. So when you look at it that way, you want them to have the most success possible and you want to play a role in helping them achieve that success. But at no point should you ever feel animosity towards the fact that you're not the one standing on top of the podium with your hand raised. That's not your job. Exactly. Your job is to guide 
these other people on their journey and hopefully be a much better guide than perhaps the one that we had at one time in our life. Exactly. Exactly. And, and I think, you know, like I said, the, the transition for me, that was, that was a learned transition and that was just a, a matter of awareness and a lot of, you know, going into myself and, and having, you know, conversations like, yep. listen, you know, what have we learned? What have we, you know, looking back and reflecting on these pieces, what have we learned? And what do you want to give now? What are you going to give back? Are you just going to try to, you know, suck people dry? Are you actually going to really, you know, be a coach and honor that name, honor yep. that word coach? Because it's so fucking overdone now. Um, yes. And I know I've said the fuck word 500 times on this call, but I think it's just because I'm talking to you. But, um, <laughs> but I'm just saying like, just really with emotion, because that name means a lot and it is a powerful name yep. if it's used inappropriately or if it's used appropriately. Yep. And so, you know, my, I think my responsibility that, you know, I take ownership in and I actually get fulfillment from is really refining that name for myself and being able to now provide a guided experience for an athlete so they can live in that element that they're searching for and potentially achieve and grow through that own, their own journey of, of sport. Yep. Um, and here I am just being able to contribute bits and pieces, but again, it making it not about me. And I, I feel like that's really becoming stronger and stronger for me because I know in the, one of my earlier years, it was like all about if they did well and if they didn't, I yep. had a shitty night, right? I was right. like, Oh man. Right. You know, and it's just, you know, it, it was funny because when I started recognizing like, well, that's not fun for me either. Like, this isn't fun. This isn't something that's fulfilling at the end of the day. Like what's fulfilling, you know, and start asking yep. those questions. And um, yeah, so it, it's, it's now for me just being able to provide that. And uh, I know we we're supposed to talk about the structure of training. Um, you know, I think meeting the athlete where they're at at this point, um, you know, the design is going to be dictated of that. So yep. if they have zero experience and they're young, guess what? We're going to be doing bicep curls and uh, we're going to learn how to swim. Right. Right, um, right. You know, and if they're older athletes and they have a history, then we're going to manage the lifestyle pieces that need to be managed and really take ownership in that. Not just kind of like bypass it. Like, Oh yeah, yeah. I get my sleep. Like, no, do you get eight hours of sleep? Solid. Right. Are you sleeping between 10 and six solid? Right. You know, are those pieces and you know, are you chewing your food and all these things that, you know, I remember, you know, gosh, as a thrower, I think we finished, I mean, I would eat food in five seconds. Like I right. never chewed my food. No one ever told me that was important. Nope. But when, when you get an older athlete in front of you who has to metabolize a lot of things during the day and we want, we don't want that gut having to work really hard. You know, those are the, the basic pieces that I think are, you can't bypass as a coach that, you know, Hey, if you don't know this, I'm going to help you know this. This yep. is, a, this is part of my job and responsibility to get you educated on what you're signing up for um, and what it takes to really be all in on that. And that's not just showing up and doing reps. So um, yeah, Derek, I mean, it's, it's a broad topic because yep. you know, the design really starts with where the athlete is with the individual sitting. in place. And right mm -hmm. now, how many athletes are you programming for? Oh man. Um, I mean, currently I do my best when I'm around 60 to 50 in that range. Yep. So um, I feel like I can give more of myself and yep. not just, you know, uh, you know, I, you know, some coaches take on more. That's, you know, maybe they have better, you know, time management skills <laughs> sure. than I do. But for, for me, I just really enjoy getting to know the individual and having a relationship. Um, and in a remote setting, I feel like 
that number is good. So right now I'm in, in that range uh, so, around the world. So how often do you go on site with the OPEX facility in Arizona? Yeah, well, since moving up here, um, actually, since moving up here, I actually am opening up um, a small laboratory, I'll call it, uh, up here. It's going to be called the Mountain Lab, and uh, we're going to be having that open up in June, but it's going to give me access to my athletes who want to fly in and work with me uh, quarterly. And then uh, in Scottsdale, I'm actually going to be making a trip down in Arizona. So I usually, you know, probably at this point, three to four times a year, but um, it's, you know, really, I'm going to try to create something up here that allows less travel for me and and then people come out and hike the Tetons and get some training in. And what altitude are you guys at there? We are at 67. Nice. Nice. So you're going to get a little bit of that altitude training effect too, by coming out to the training lab in your, yeah, we'll come out here and train. We'll hit a hot sauna right after. And then, you know, your EPO ratios will be really, uh, really tight before you leave. So not yeah, such, well, not such a bad way to do it. Right. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you know, it, it, it makes me laugh because we went to school at 7,200 feet, you know, and it's, uh, you know, so mm-hmm. there we are eating cheeseburgers and gaining weight at 7,200 feet, right? <laughs> That's right. Just a product right. of misery. Yeah. We were, I forgot yeah. Laramie was that high. Yeah. Third highest university in the country. You got uh Western States at 8,000 in Southern Colorado, Alamosa's at 76 ish. Yeah. And then Laramie was at 7222. Yeah. So three highest universities are in this part of the world. So as you can imagine, it must have really sucked for people coming up from Long Beach to play a little basketball. <laughs> Laramie, Wyoming. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah, no wonder. Again, no wonder running sucked for us too. And now uh, that I think about it, <laughs> everything sucked. It snowed in fucking August. So. You know, oh, it's yeah, and June. And I June. I, I've I've been every month that I've been in Laramie, Wyoming. So I've been there for a whole calendar year at one time or another, and I never saw a single month where a snowflake did not hit the ground. Wow. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so with that being said, closing out, allow you get back to your your schedule. What do you got coming up uh, where people might be crossing your path in the say the next three to six months? Wow. Three to six months. Well, I will be in three months. I'm not really going anywhere right now. I'm going to yep. stay up here and, and, uh, you know, play in the snow and we're doing a lot of touring and backcountry stuff right now. Um, I'll be heading down to, uh, the, down to South, uh, Arizona, I'll be in, uh, OPEX probably the first week of April and planning to be down there and working with a few athletes flying in. And then I'm heading up to Moab. Um, I'm actually racing in enduro race mountain biking. I don't yep. know if you ever heard about that, but, uh, I'll be racing a few races down in Moab and then down in Santa Fe and kind of getting my vitamin D dose and a little bit of speed on my bike, which will be fun. And then I'll be coming back up uh, in June to open up the, hopefully have the facility ready to go just to kind of, uh, and run a few local things. So actually you saying that I just actually was booking um, some workshops and talks for local athletes here which a lot of them are, um, you know, extreme athletes, whether they're skiers, uh, mountain bikers and road cyclists up here. So I'll be doing Perfect. some workshops and talks around uh, training and education on how to maximize um, their seasons mm-hmm. and, you know, just little simple fundamental things. But yeah, so I'll be running up that I'll be running that up here for the all through the uh, the summer. And then, uh, yeah, that's probably it, though. So, so if you want to 
get a hold of me. I mean, yeah, please. What's the easiest way for people to track you down? Yeah, well, right now, uh, the website that I'm creating up here for my own personal use is in the works, but yep. you can always uh, follow me on my Instagram handle since we've been talking social media, sure. um, which is Coach Robin Lyons, and uh, and then at opex.com. So you can get, get a hold of me there, obviously, uh, for remote coaching or consultations uh, through opexfit.com. Awesome. Well, as always, but granted, we have a 20-year-old relationship, so for me, I'm biased, but it is... One of my favorite things to do is to catch up with you, and it's a shame that we don't do it more often. So I'm going to get your Santa Fe schedule from you because I might be able to pop down if I'm in the country for that and check you out, and we'll be able to cross paths. Um, but awesome. Uh, I can't thank you enough for being on the upstart of what I hope to be a pretty interesting podcast life for me, and uh, I really appreciate it. Yeah, Derek, always a pleasure, and uh, we'll definitely be in touch. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Ecobolic Radio. For more information about upcoming guests and episodes, please follow Derek Witzke on his Instagram or at DerekWitzke.com. 